When the credits start rolling, but the movie keeps haunting you. Before, after. Then it's time to tune in to Dismembering Horror. We'll talk about what worked and also what didn't. We'll dissect every aspect. Maybe someone we shouldn't. He turned out to be a completely unreliable asshole. Take it away, boys. Hello, Tim. Hello, Ryan. And hello, everyone. Thanks for being here to Dismembering Horror, specifically episode 189 of Dismembering Horror, getting oh so close to that magic number 200. Thank you all for being here. We are joined by one more individual today. So let me introduce him. All right. Well, he holds a PhD in geochemistry from Stanford, a BS in geology from UT Austin, and a BA in criminology from UM Missoula, and teaches science communication courses at Stanford. He began his career as a research scientist and co-created the podcast Generation Anthropocene in 2012, which is a science podcast featuring stories and conversations about planetary change. Uh, has had episodes of that featured in Wired's five best podcast episodes of the week, the Atlantic's 50 best podcast episodes of 2015, won the Science Studio Award for best podcast of 2013 for their episode Heading to Hell in a Handbasket. He also hosts the podcast Raw Data, a podcast about how information becomes power. And last but not least, uh, my favorite out of them, the podcast he hosts Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life, one dead celebrity at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Michael C. Osborne. Welcome, Michael. Wow, welcome. That uh, I've never heard all those things said in one place. What an introduction. <laughs> we uh, like I, to give our guests a royal treatment. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Wow. Can I get that uh, from you? I need that bio. I need to use that. Uh, <laughs> well, anything in your own words, what you'd like to say you kind of do or specialize in? Uh, not really. I mean, I guess the only thing I'd say is these days I'm really working as a full-time podcast producer, uh, a con consultant on one level, and then more and more running a production studio. So while I do have the background in earth sciences and, and started off as a PhD in geology, geochemistry, um, I wear that hat a little less often, but I still bust it out a lot. So, uh, I'm, and I, I kind of don't even know what to do with it. Like I don't, I don't, really think of myself as a PhD person, but it does start to sound, I don't know. I don't know. That's the best thing. I don't even know how the fuck it sounds. That's why I don't know what to do with it. So uh, <laughs> anyway, it. but, but, but you, you see if that's the thing, it sounded so much better coming out of uh, your mouth, uh, Ryan. So anyway. Right. You don't go around correcting people. That's doctor, actually. Yeah, exactly. How dare you <laughs> call me Mr. Osborne? No. And I would say, you know, the last thing you mentioned, famous and gravy, that is, that's the project that I'm pouring a lot of, you know, passion, love, and attention into these days. Uh, all those other projects are sort of there, but Famous and Gravy is my is my current first love. Great. Cool. Um, and for today, I don't even think we mentioned it yet. We are talking about the original from 1977, The Hills Have Eyes, which uh, is just one more uh, box check of Wes Craven's filmography for you today, Michael. I had never seen this before. It was very exciting. And I didn't actually realize until I sat down to watch it that this is a Wes Craven movie. Like, I don't know how I didn't know that, but um, that, that, uh, that had me giddy at the outset. <laughs> Great. 
we'll get into get into it all here and we like to get into it all here by setting the mood with a trailer if you guys are ready ready do it all right here we go as i said from 1977 written and directed by none other than wes craven the hills have eyes they wanted to see something different but something different saw them first the hills have eyes mister don't take your family back in that area the silver has been gone for 40 years now. Besides, there's nothing back in there but animals. A lot. The old creep told you not to get off the road. What began as a vacation ended as a nightmare. We held a pay now. That was bad. She thought she knew what the world was all about, but nothing prepared her for this. The hills have eyes. Wow. <laughs> wow is right. <laughs> what a trailer. <laughs> it really is. Uh, all right, I'm going to bite my tongue. Don't make them like that anymore. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, bite your tongue no longer. You have to do because we are on to our ratings, which, all right, per our rating system, Michael, would you tell yourself to avoid this film, stream this film, rent this film, or just to go ahead and buy it? And this is you talking to yourself here. I think I got to stream. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I think, I, and and I can give you my uh, reasoning. Should yeah, I? yeah. Okay. Your your summary uh, review and summary here. What your experience was. We'd love to hear it. Well, so I had known about this movie for a long time, and I had had it recommended to me by nerdy friends. But then when I told them that I was going to be doing this recording with you guys, that I the reaction I got sort of set some expectations. It was like, yeah, it's got faults. It's got, there's some, there's some problems with it. Um, now I went into it with a very, like wanting to have a generous interpretation and I love knowing kind of the history here. And, uh, so I'm really looking forward to, you know, the backstory as you guys can give it to me. Um, but this is not a good movie. I mean, it's not a bad movie, but this is not, this is not like, it, it, I think that there's some unintentional comedy and there's some ideas in here that I really, really love. And I feel like if you're a fan of horror movies, you have to know this and you have to see it. But I'll tell you, as soon as I finished watching it, the first thing I did was I went and watched the trailer for the remake and I, I wondered, I, I got curious about that. I haven't seen the remake yet. So overall, I think I'd stream this movie. I wouldn't avoid it. Like, it, it has value. Um, but I don't know that I'm super bullish on it. Yeah, actually, it's pretty funny. The remake does have its fans, more fans than probably the original, or it's almost now agreed upon. A lot of people say, you know what? I like it better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I... I, I can talk about the things I liked about it, but I'll I'll hold off on that until we get to it. Perfect. How about you, Timothy? I'm about the same. Like it's it's good in the sense to me that it's kitschy and and grimy and like of a, of an era and of a filmmaker's catalog. Like I like all those things about it, 
But like, do I want to rewatch this with any regularity? No, I'd much rather watch the the remake, which I've I've probably seen the remake three ish times, and like this this is probably only the second time I ever watched this one because it's like I don't know, it's fine. There's some really bad stuff in it. Yeah, there's like, some things that do not work. Yeah. yeah, so like I think it's cool from a certain perspective, but like you know, it's not great. Yeah, I um, it's funny. I kind of like agree with all that, but it still makes a rent it for me because there's there's enough in it that I do just love so much. I mean, it's the thing where it's like you can't make a movie like this anymore. So just the fact that it's a grimy 70s movie, uh, major bonus points for me and just how how cruel it is like it's i just love that about it in a horror movie sense i like how how wicked it all is the story here and a lot of what goes on so had fun with it for that but yeah it's just it doesn't really i don't know it doesn't come close to reaching i know it's i'm gonna compare it a lot to texas chainsaw massacre here but i don't know if that's fair or not but it's just kind of easy to do and maybe easy to have expectations there but doesn't quite reach that kind of level which is where my standard is for this kind of film but still fun time rent it i want to revisit it every so often just to go to this weird old desert and (laughs) these weird old characters (laughs) yeah i think the texas chainsaw massacre comparison is right on the money it is hard to watch this and not do a kind of compare and contrast in your head with the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like yeah. The similarities are tremendous. And it was a direct um, sort of influence and inspiration. You know, they were aware of it at the time for sure. Was We were like, okay, this made money. I'll get into it more later. But uh, actually, same production designer, I believe. So literally the same bones and animal carcasses in both films. Too. <laughs> Which came first? Texas Chainsaw came out in 74. So that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. All right. Well, uh, we'd love to defer to you, our guest here, to do our summary. What was this film? What was the sequence of events in this film? How do you summarize it for us? And we're here to assist if you need help. Okay. I think plot-wise, it's not particularly complicated. A (laughs) family (laughs) is uh, driving across the country. They're in the desert. They're heading towards California. Sounds like they have a the father is sort of a bullheaded figure who wants to do a detour to visit some mines uh, in the desert. So they take an off-road, get off the interstate, find themselves getting gas on an obscure dirt road in the middle of nowhere. Um, It looks to me like Southern California, although maybe it's Southern uh, Arizona, somewhere in the Arizona-California border. Um, And they... uh, find them they they get into a car accident they find themselves uh needing to go out for help they're nowhere near where uh they're, they're nowhere near civilization they're stranded in the middle of nowhere and so some of the men in the party uh split off in different directions to go search for gas and assistance and uh the family is left with a crashed uh station wagon in a winnebago or a, a trailer um and then uh and then terrible things start happening. Uh, mutants, I guess. I don't know if they're mutants, but kind of a, a deranged family uh, begins stalking them. Uh, and uh, slowly things get worse. The A dog dies, tragically. 
and then some people die. And then we find out that the bad guys in the hills are uh, the kin of somebody who who raised a family there but had a, a problem child, and that problem child built a family. And then uh, then people start dying. <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, that's about how's that? How am I doing so far? On both sides, it. people start dying. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, pretty much but, it. Yeah, and and they're cannibals. Turns yeah, out, they're cannibals. Um, they are. Um, I mean, the wardrobe is a little hard to understand. <laughs> I mean, they're wearing, I guess, <laughs> hides and like they've got bone necklaces and that kind of thing. And there's some pretty uh, grotesque scarring in some places. Um, and then there's the dude from Weird Science. I could not see him. Y'all know the movie Weird oh, Science. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I, Weird Science was a staple when I was a kid. Um, and so, you know, and I saw his head, face on the cover. I was like, oh, that's where this guy got his start. Right. Uh, and then, uh, and then a whole bunch of people die and a few people get away. Yeah. At the end. One dog dies, one dog saves the day. Yeah. Actually, that's the thing I love about it. I, I, I was really in on the dogs. <laughs> yeah. I Beauty like and how, Beast. Yeah. Yeah. I like how even in the trailer, they, they sort of, call out what I, I presume was kind of just a structural choice for like the movie that like the first night is like all the bad stuff happens and like is terrorizing and the second night is this venge or the second day is this like vengeance day which yeah. is a, a fun you know very simplistic construct but it is essentially what the movie is yeah great I feel like that summarizes it pretty well gets to the point yeah I think one thing that that will become confusing because I was confused for most of the movie is who's who. And so yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but you have the patriarch of the family is this older former cop. Big Bob. Big Bob. His wife, their three children, two daughters and a son. And okay, the, I was confused on just that point, I, by the way. It took me right? forever to figure this out. Yeah. So there's three kids to the two older parents. The oldest daughter is married and has a newborn baby. And so the, the husband of her is obviously the father of the baby. So there's, there's ostensibly, there's two couples and then a brother and sister who are male and female. Um, Obviously, brother and sister. So it's a li there's there's three pairings, but two of them are brother sister, or and two of them or the other four are couples. Yep, dude, dude, no. you say obvious. It was not obvious to me that they were brother and sister. <laughs> I know there was a few moments where I was like, "Have I misread this?" <laughs> yeah, totally right. And and uh, maybe I don't know. That's how it is in their family. I don't well, know. Yeah. Anyway. And then on the 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 mirrored side of that is keeping track of all the cannibals, the hill people, right. Right, there's have... like a patriarch and a matriarch, right? Yep. And then there's their offspring. Yep. Which is everybody's named after a planet. Yeah. So you, have, I think you have Jupiter <laughs> is the head guy. Right here, my friend helped me out with it. Figure it all out. So yeah, we think Jupiter is the big one, the head. That's Papa Jupiter. Then of course we just have Mama's just Mama, and then we have Mars is the the god of war. He's the one with the sharpened teeth, the real cruel one. Right. And then we all know Pluto. It's just of course Michael Berryman, the one we all recognize. Mercury, smaller one, smaller part, dies at the beginning with the dog, and then the girl is Ruby. Not a planet that yeah. we know of. <laughs> exactly. Great. 
Yeah, well, that's that's the quiz. It's always the quiz. Who's who in this movie? Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. And then well, the dogs, Beauty and the Beast. Right, right. right. And yeah. Be- Beast is the one who's uh, the survivor, right? He saves the day. Correct, yeah. 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 Beauty dies early. Great. Oh. All right. Got it, got it. Good. Yeah, got it, got I, I'm glad that I... So, <laughs> pretty much every time my girlfriend and I watch a horror film, if there's any animal in it, in particular a dog, she'll be like, hang on. And she'll there's a website that's called Does the Dog Die? <laughs> And she'll look up the movie and see if the dog dies so she can like mentally prepare for it or not watch it. Yeah. So I was like, when this got going, I was like, oh, that's right. This this is going on. But she was at work. So I was able to watch it without her uh, experiencing any trauma. What a resource. That's great. Does yeah, the dog right? die? I need to make note of that. <laughs> and does the dog save the day, which he does. That's right. All yeah. right. Let's move on to our first big section here. Here we go. What? Worked. What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? What worked for you? Michael, any overarching things for you that did work with this film? There's a there's actually a lot, right? I mean, this is why I was sort of on the stream rent bubble uh, in terms of uh, you know how to grade this movie. I I love the setting. Actually, I think that the desert and it's, you know, it's all those um, kind of rounded granite rocks. It looks a lot. There's a spot in Southern California called Alabama Hills. It looks a little like that where you get this sort of spheroidal weathering, they call it in geology. Um, And it's just funky and it's weird. It's trippy. Uh, I like that quite a bit. Um, There's also some really creative deaths in this uh, movie that uh, that a dog is responsible for a death is outstanding that uh and then there's it's not a death exactly but they use the when they in the final scene when they use the uh busted car wheel to uh set the trap that has the rope like i thought that was clever i'd never seen that before in a horror movie where they you set i don't know how you describe this exactly but the rope the rope is tied on to the the rear wheel of a flat tire. And so when they rev up the engine, they they drag somebody across the desert floor. And then the rattlesnake scene. I <laughs> yeah. also really like that was, you know, there's a rattlesnake in the background. Ruby, who who turns out to be a, a good guy after all, uh, traps the rattlesnake and like uses it as a like as a knife, as a weapon, uh, <laughs> to 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 get somebody whatever these guys are tussling. So I I I thought all of that was like out of the box solutions for, you know, how to attack and kill. Um, so that worked for me. All very desert based and sort of what's satisfying in the horror movie sense of like what is immediately available around you and how you twist yeah. it into this story. So definitely, yeah, it checks those boxes. Super fun in that regard. So those are the big things that really. And then I guess the one other thing. So I mentioned earlier, I watched the trailer for the new movie, um, and in the in the preview for the remake, they allude to, I mean, I think they, they begin it by saying there's all this nuclear testing that happens in the desert southwest. They kind of nod to that or hint at it a little early on in the original that there's, I don't know, some sort of... I don't know, nuclear fallout or nuclear tests going on in the desert. And that that may have led to abnormal human behavior for the deranged family that lives in the hills. I, I like uh, I like that kind of 
threat. You know, I like that. Um, what, what do I mean when I say that? Uh, I, I feel like we don't tell enough nuclear holocaust uh, stories anymore. And that, that, I don't know, just the kind of cloud of how scary nukes were in the mid-70s. I like that. Works with that Nevada I mean, they shot it in Nevada, but I think it takes place there in California by now. But yeah, it works with that setting, absolutely. The desert where they do all the nuclear tests. I really like just the level it was on. I mean, it is fun when they make it more of a thing in the remake, which they do. But it's just the sort of background texture that I really like in this one, too. Where so much as, since it is so non-explicit, it lets you interpret even more more things out of it, at least for me. So it's like, well, I was thinking, okay, the nuclear influence, the military presence, there's just something about this like cold indifference of um, of the planes, just the presence of the military that are just able, they're just not a part of the world. There's no way you can yell to them for help. You know, and it's just another level of you sort of look at this story from the class angle, these two different classes, they're almost mm-hmm. like the upper, upper echelon stratosphere, like beyond even the uh the quote unquote regular people in this story. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the class stuff is a big part of this that there's these undertones of or underpinnings of of just sort of like everything is a result of some version of neglect and like the you know the the mutants the 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 papa mutant is the son of a guy who was freaked out by his kid being different. And his like the dad tries to kill him, like smashes his face with a tire iron because he's a problem kid and he's like not, you know, not normal. That's a pretty harsh uh, parenting sort of thing, (laughs) right? And so like he's he's in a way uh, just a normal um, response to that is to, to be, you know, vengeful toward everybody. The part where the uh, the father, the, the the I guess the grandfather figure who who gave birth to the you know who was the father of the mutant family, I guess it's a little hard to describe. The the gas station attendant, the part where he says uh, he was born sideways. That's a little. Right. I did it. That was like what? Um, like damn near killed her. Um, like came out wrong. You yeah, know, right. that was how that was how they illustrated. You know, born. And the, yeah, and I, I like the implication, I guess, I think it's more implied than, than explicit that, that that's a result of these, this couple trying to have a kid in this region that has this nuclear fallout. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I really like your point about neglect too. I mean, I, something else that does work for me is the opening scene where, where we see, um, you know, this, I mean, it's, it's like a, a thousand, um, a, 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 a thousand things you see on like a, a remote, you know, highway when driving across America of like some ghost town, some just neglect of, you know, a bunch of, bunch of trash or what looks like trash in the yard of some, rum, you know, rundown old shack and they barely have gasoline. And yeah, that's interesting about neglect. I, I think that's a, actually a great, great, it's a great point. There's one line that that really hones in on it too. Well, there's there's two kind of big moments that I think pointed at it. In the beginning, you know, the girl Ruby shows up at the gas station and is like, "I'm trying to get out. I'm trying to get away from this." And there, the the gas station attendant is like, "There's no way you can, right? Like this is sort of your lot in life, and like there's nowhere for you to go because the world won't accept you." 
And and then th- when the family shows up, they're like, hey, can we dump our trash here? And he's like, yeah, you might as well just dump it anywhere in this desert. And so there's this sort of recurring thing later on when the husband uh, comes back he, and he's got some ju- like seemingly some junk with him. He's all like, man, there's so much stuff out here. Like we could the, like this is why our taxes are so high because everybody's <laughs> just throwing things away. So there's this kind of constant reinforcement of this idea of like waste versus like value and like the world or certain classes of the world feeling like they can just toss things to the side, which is kind of what the gas station dad guy did with his son, right? He's like, oh, you came out wrong, so I'm just going to smash you and throw you to the wayside and assume that the desert will eat you up, but it doesn't. He survives and he creates his own family. So, like, that is reinforced, and I think it's a cool theme. (laughs) Like, whether or not it's perfectly executed, I mean, that's up for debate. But are you making the case that it's commentary? I am, yeah. I think it is. I think that there is a constant sort of thread. I wonder with movies like this how much those types of threads were overtly like thought out or if they just are kind of naturally there as you create a really basic story. Yeah. And then you yeah. just like subconsciously you're you're putting those comments in. I I don't know, but Wes Craven seems to be pretty savvy about commentary, so I would lean toward that. Yeah, I think you see it definitively with the ending where rather than having the the denouement moment, we sort of have the hard cut ending of, what's his name, mustache dude Doug, Fine, you know, violently. <laughs> Our killing. hero. Yeah, he's killing. Um, Quite the stud. Yeah, he's yeah, killing the last of the of the the hillbillies, the hills have eyes people, our friends. But you know, past the fact of necessity to the point of like this, mm. this uh, uh, what you represent, I just have to kill. You know, it's as well as just reduced to their tribal sides. I mean, it's pointed out a lot with this film. You have the um, the equal number of family combos. You know combination six versus six minus the baby so it does become you know the reduced to their survival instincts mm. um so to end on that i feel like is a pretty deliberate choice to to the image of the guy who's the quote-unquote from the normal side blood on his hands and his face and his own fervor no different from the cannibals in that sense I didn't watch it from a uh, commentary perspective, but I, I like hearing the case because I agree with you, Tim, that there is, you know, whether whether it's deliberate or whether it's happenstance, like sometimes these themes and ideas are in the ether. And so even though I don't think this movie holds up for a variety of reasons, I, I do think that there are like it did resonate and it did become a cult classic for some reason. And usually that's because that kind of commentary you know, is implied or is hinted at in a way that people can read things into it, whether that's on purpose or not. I mean, I think I've often thought about, wondered about that with George Romero and how much his movies are deliberate social commentary. I think they become deliberate social commentary, but do they start off that way and he just luck into an idea? And I I guess I have the same set of questions for Wes Craven, because I think you can extend that further to also talk about cannibalism. Mm. Right. Like cannibalism is such a um, symbolic act. And these are cannibals in the hills that to, to eat somebody to consume and I don't know, means 
means something. There's ways of interpreting, you know, that particular version of horror. Right, because you don't want to, it's sort of our nature to be like, well, when it comes down to survival, you never want to judge or blame someone. Yet cannibalism does bring up that immediate question. Yeah, but, yeah, and who's at fault, right? And who's going to eat who? Yeah, and yeah. it's even though like, you know, imagine two people at odds or whatever on a desert island. You know, people always say that to vegans kind of thing. What if you're on the desert island? Well, what if you're two people on a desert island? I don't know. Or, you know, there's the famous case of... um of, uh, you know, they, they didn't kill people. They waited for them to die. But the, uh, was it the skiing team in the Andes? They made that movie. Oh, yeah, that was the soccer Chil- team. Chilean yeah, yeah. soccer team, yeah. It was a great, was it great Chilean? book. I thought it was Bolivian or something. Yeah, oh, maybe they lot. were from Bolivia, but they were going over the Chilean Andes or something. Yeah, yeah. but obviously different here. They're deliberately um, catching a baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, there was There was something um, I liked. There, there was a, a nice touch. They were excited touch. about it, like delicatessen. And they were so like giddy. Ooh, oh, yeah. Maybe like it's like it's like veal. Go for its toes first or whatever they were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, but there was something neat about, I I don't know, it's not direct or obvious, but just I liked the idea and the imagery of how they replaced the same sized pig with the baby. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Something fun about that. It's just food. Yeah. There is something in this movie that I kept thinking about, like in regards to necessity, right? Like, Mm. The the cannibals, I mean, from a certain perspective, are are just trying to survive. And since they're not a part of society, any opportunity for them to survive is, in their minds, valid. Now, I think what makes the storytelling at least somewhat worthwhile is that we are constantly put to that question of like, okay, well— are they doing this because they're starving and and that's their last resort and they have to, or are they enjoying it or can those things coexist or are they mutually exclusive? Like where does it fall for them as humans? Like, should we sympathize with them? Like they were kind of like thrown to the, you know, to nature to just be like eaten up by that. So, are we any better in that sense? Like if we're on the other side of that? Right. I think we can sympathize on a very human level of being stuck in our beliefs of what is capable as well as just if we are sort of, you know, doing the very human thing of, um, what is it? I don't know if it's quite like victim mentality, but you know, the mentality that we are against other people because when they catch ruby uh you know wanting to escape they say it's impossible there's no way you're ever going to be accepted into the other world so their whole clan and you know why they think justify the cannibalism is because it's a non-option the idea of incorporating with the other world not just because they like couldn't figure out how to fit in, you know, with clothes and getting a job, but because <laughs> they're the they're the bad guys that we have to stay away from. They're the ones who did this to us, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to get some more like filmmaking things here that stood out to me. The uh, the highlight of this film to me, where I just think you see uh, Wes Craven, you know, is just a talented filmmaker pretty early on. Here is the whole centerpiece trailer confrontation attack like how it plays out because like not only just have the documentary feel that it's shot that just gives it that um 
you know, that grimy realism tenseness. But what really got me in the filmmaking sense was the staging and sort of the 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 pacing and plotting of it all. Like you, it really gave the feel of like you couldn't necessarily write it. Like you could write like, you know, they go in, try to rape her, da, 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 da. Then it happens, whatever, um, in the script. But it really seems to me like you had filmmakers, actors, you know, included going into this small space and small specific situation and being all in tune with the same goal of just the, you know, not just the, 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 um, what exactly has to happen, who has to die, who stabs, who, when, but just the, the, the staging of it all, the where and, and when ends that small space and trailer. It had that, like you could only figure it out when you're then and there and, yeah, use those and within those constraints, reach your your larger goal. And that's something that you can really only do, yeah, when working um and when you know you're filmmaking and are all on the same page there. It's just really impressed with that sequence. I'm way out of my depths with uh with a lot of that stuff, but I was watching the the attack in the trailer and wondering how they shot it and how they got it. I mean, you are very much in there and you know, I've, I've, I've been in campers before. They're tiny, right? Yeah. Like, how do you, <laughs> it's just, this is not a lot of room to, to work in. And yet there's a lot happening, as you said. Um, so I, I had the same thought that that was, I was sort of impressed by it. And I mean, you know, it, it is true in a, I mean, I, this, I guess there's a lot of explosions, but this does, did seem low budget ish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, and I think, that there's some value in that as well, obviously. I think by today's dollars, it's like would be a two and a half, three million dollar budget, something like that. Right. Um, but yeah, no, shot on 16 millimeter. But um, yeah, as far as how it's kind of like shot and staged, not just in that scene, but throughout, it was for me was that really winning combination of it's so just it's grimy and it feels haphazard almost just like they're they're grabbing shots here and there and it gives it that documentarian documentary feel yet it's really well shot too like you look at the amount of coverage that they get like you think when the the dog attack sequence which is just so much better than like a cg dog nowadays the way it actually captures that intensity and <laughs> visceralness of the attack and they do it through just a very very careful very very careful staging that's easy to take for granted when it has that sort of grimy aesthetic you have the inserts of the growl you have the bites themselves you know cutting to who's getting attacked the initial run you have the point of view of the dog at points it's really smart and incredible to work within your means but also just be the most effective filmmaking wise that's got to be part of what Wes Craven's real talent always has been is that like he's able to take fairly chaotic like movement and and sort of refine it down to to something that that is still visually chaotic but we are able to really understand very clearly what's going on right like you don't get lost you're never thinking like Oh, I'm confused now because I was over here and now I'm over here and which like who am I looking at now? You never feel that way. It's really really well constructed in spite of it being like camera is jammed into people's faces and into their bodies and it's super up close and it's super frenetic and yet it's very clear what's going on. And that that was really true in uh, Last House in the Left as well where you're just like I think the that the talent that he has to create that is really giving us 
the is it's it's like making us know that this is a film by him. Like we know what that language is that he's created, and it's to a point. Like it has it serves this very specific purpose in how it makes us feel when we're when we're in there because we're effectively. I've uh, when when I watch these, I feel like I'm right in the middle of the fight. Right, you don't really get a ton of let's back out to like reset and give us a sense of like where we are. Like he doesn't bother with that too much. I mean, occasionally it happens just to give scope, but like when things really are going crazy, the camera work is also crazy, and yet we don't lose track of anything. I think that's an amazing talent. Yeah, and it's one you don't notice unless it's pointed out. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about that before. I guess I'm like, so when I think Wes Craven movies, the ones that just leap to the surface for me are uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream. I mean, I think that those are the two that are like the biggest Wes Craven movies in a way. Do you see that same thing carrying through? I was trying to remember back on those movies, and you know, if there's iconic scenes like that. You do, but it's a completely different style. Like, it's the right. smooth aesthetics. Think of, like, the the sort of the wide two, three, five framing, having, you know, multiple people in frame, the tracking dolly shots, the tracking... Um, steady cam shots, but still yeah. doing essentially what Tim is saying as far as really like, having a good sense of um, space and relations to one another in the space. Well, the other thing I was thinking when you were talking about that is, um, is what a hard landscape this would be to do it in. I mean, I, I was trying to paint a picture earlier of the like rocky terrain, but I mean that, that scene where that, um, one of the sons or the son, I guess, is running, uh, chasing after the dog and like kind of bouldering around and rock climbing like that, that, you know, that's, that's tough territory. There's no set out there like that in a way, you know? And I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't know, I guess as a geologist, I love that shit. <laughs> I immediately like that whole sequence. Cause I've, I've hurt myself a number of times being like going a little too hard, too fast you know, yeah. in sports mostly, but like I'm watching that and I'm just like waiting for his knee to like snap in half or an ankle to break or whatever. Totally. And I, and then, the, and then they cut to the POV like camera and the, whoever is running with that camera was <laughs> like full speed running down that terrain. Yeah. And I'm like, Jesus guys, like, did you not have insurance? <laughs> you just were like, fuck it. Let's just go for it and hope nobody gets hurt. Like it was insane. I was like, man, they must've cast that dude specifically. They're like, find an athlete that we know will not break an ankle. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's impossible to run like that down, down boulders without hurting yourself. My God. <laughs> I, th I wondered if he was a male cheerleader. He does a flip at some point or That's a backflip right. at some point. Right. And <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. think like that terrain is kind of like a big, you know, natural playground, a big, you know, boulder garden or whatever. Right. I, I mean, it, it kind of, e even though you're right, I just had the exact same thought. Somebody's going to twist an ankle on this. <laughs> um, you kind of want to run on it too, you know? There, yeah. There's one shot in that sequence where his foot slips just a little bit and it's like breathtaking to me. I was like, oh, yeah. oh, oh God. There it comes, yeah. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> and the dog too. The dog is yeah. like rock climber extraordinaire. It's incredible. Yeah, uh, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to say on the trailer again, just I remembered what uh, what made me realize during that sequence um, 
Well, all that I was saying earlier, it translates to how like real and nasty it all feels like the attack itself, where it was the moment where um, I think it's Mars shoots the two family members, shoots the daughter and the mother. The way it happens, it's like, it's as if it's not a big deal to him at all. It's just kind of like, oh, things coming at me, I need to shoot it. And it's that kind of like, I don't know, that was the moment actually sort of in a horror movie sense got to me the most and made it feel real. It kind of cut through the caricatureness of them all. Mm. That, that I feel like, is the thing that I've heard the most about when people talk about this movie, in particular people who saw it when it came out. They all point to that moment of just like thinking, oh, what we're not supposed to have gone this far in a movie. Like you're not supposed to just coldly in this sort of moment of of chaotic sort of f- frantic whatever fighting, just p- get the gun out and be like, no, I'm just going to shoot you without any sort of like emotion to it. People were really, really shocked by that. That's interesting. And it, it's effective. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of not a lot of buildup to it. You put it like that, and it kind of reminds you of Drew Barrymore's death in Scream, right? Mm. Like, you're like, this doesn't usually happen. Because you're right. There was not a whole lot of lead up. You don't, I mean, there's a lot of um, whatever, fighting happening in that scene, but you don't necessarily think somebody's going to die. And then two people die, and you're like, wait, what? Yeah, that's a really good call. I, I hadn't noted that. Yeah. And uh, that scene I got to bring up or transition here just makes me think of a great excuse to mention the character work on behest of the cannibals. Like, I just love, love, love them. Like, they aren't, it's funny, they're like scary, scary in a way. And Michael, you mentioned like what their outfits were, like how you describe it. I feel it's kind of like, like Native American meets hillbillies. In yeah, a way. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So wait, you, so you loved that? Yeah, well, no, I loved, I, there's this, it, it's just, it's distinct, you know? I like that about distinct. it. And it's just yeah. an interesting take on how these people might, might uh, I don't know, it, it lends a bigger picture to who these people are. But um, mm. what I really loved about them too, I mean, the, the the dialogue that they had, some of their lines, like Mars's especially, the one that's, I think, the classic one, everyone's favorite, when he goes in to see the baby, baby's fat, you fat, fat and juicy. And this is lines <laughs> like that throughout where whether it's like I said earlier excited about eating the baby's toes or just these like kind of cruel quips that they always offer to um our our victims here um but then down to like in that same sequence oh yeah like when you have the Mars yells at Pluto um something about like need to be a man or something like that you know and then begins um assaulting her but then I love that that moment was so interesting to me that there's so Pluto's like I'm gonna rape the girl, and then Mars comes in and he's like, "You can't do that yet because you you haven't become a man yet." And it's like, "What are we talking <laughs> about?" And then yeah. and then Pluto's reaction to that yes. is to smash up the the Winnebago or the trailer or whatever. And it's just like they're just obviously so you know well like developmentally challenged or they're so like primitive minded i guess is probably the best way to put it that like they're all just a bunch of kids like they have no contact with the outside world and they're all just like winging it 
yeah, that's exactly what I want to mention that him um, destroying the inside of the trailer. I just loved that so much that that's his reaction. Yeah, he has so, a tantrum. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This, the frustration, if you will. Um, and then another little moment in that I thought was great with them was uh, <laughs> the bird when he sees it. He just has to drink its blood. Like, yeah, great. yeah, yeah. Little ooh, snack. Ooh, it's like a can of Coke just pops the head off <laughs> right. and gu- guzzles it down. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, highlight sequence for sure of the film for me, that whole, that whole sequence. It's funny, you know, not to bring up the, the remake too much, but the, the crucifixion of the, the main dad, the dad, dad, whatever you call him, Bob, right? Um, yeah, the former cop, yeah. Yeah, like, in this, it almost felt like they shied away from it, and I think I'm only saying that in comparison to how intensely graphic the same scene is in the remake. Um, but in a weird way, by, by, I think it's a trick. I think it's a, I think it's a film trick to have that scene be shot in a way that makes us feel like we're, we shouldn't see it all. That we that it's tricking us, the audience, into believing that that's the worst thing that's going to happen. And then the next scene is this super cold, really uh, upsetting rape and murder scene. And so, like, I think that that's part of what made everybody who watched this initially have such a strong reaction to the second part is that they're being kind of pushed and pulled by the director to, like, think one thing is bad and then be smacked across the face with this thing that's so much worse. But not, uh, it's not worse in the gratuity of it, I guess. Yeah. So it's a it's a weird, interesting dynamic that they that he created there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's 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 interesting you talking about putting it that way, Tim. How th- in this kind of this kind of tone of a movie, how that works because it's not like about the fun and the gore of the kill. Like you remember, we watched the Texas Chainsaw remake. We dismembered that. It started off with a great visceral kill in the first scene, but then it was kind of like almost had nowhere to go. It felt like in a way, or you know, you can build from there, but didn't really. At least I don't know for me. My anyway, it's just an example. But for this when it's about the um being involved with the realism and the tenseness of of all that as soon as you um have that um uh it it makes it so anything goes at that point any movie yeah. expectations about where we are like you i mean i forgot if they actually ate the baby or not at the end i would not have put it past this movie because that's of just, what i was going to say you know, i think that this the the effect that doing it this way has on us is that once we get through that trailer scene we go, well, shit, if they're going to do that in such a sort of cold way, they probably are going to eat the baby, aren't they? And so it sets you up to start anticipating that, which is exactly like what you want in a horror film. Regardless of outcome, you want the movie to get you like fight or flight, like your nervous system to start firing off 
Well, and it makes it all more unpredictable. I mean, that's, I guess, what I'm hearing in all that, yeah. right? If, you, if you're if you horrified by gore, but if that's all a movie does is try and, like, beat you over the head with gore, at some point, gore becomes predictable. But if you contrast that with a, like, wait, they just died? And wait, they're also cannibals? Then you don't, like, th- then then it, it adds an element of surprise. And yeah, that, and that, you're you primed. Know, it keeps you on your toes. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Which yeah. I, I, that's... To me, that's the great success of a horror film. And, and lots of different, there's lots of different ways to do it, obviously. But the the best horror films for me are ones that prime you effectively. And then just you're, you know, you're sitting on the edge of that for the rest of the movie. And it makes everything else more intense. Yeah. So hard to design for that, though. I, I, you I know, know. It's, it seems like you get like the, the horror movies I love. I feel like they just happen to get lucky with those elements of like creating a horrific atmosphere, doing something I don't expect it, but also being, you know, use leaning on tropes like a gore or like jump out of the bushes, startle you or, you know, or, or, or any other kind of cliche, right? Like it, yeah. it, it really, it takes a, a sort of lucky amalgam to make it all work. We've, we've talked yeah. about that a lot, Tim, like what exactly, how, how does one pull that off? I feel like it's, I mean, yeah, it can be luck for sure, but I really feel like it's a matter of filmmaker filmmakers being in tune where, where audience sensibilities are at, at any given point. When is the jump scare supposed to come? Who is yeah. the character who's supposed to not die? Right. And then just right. coming from that place. Well, and I think it also leans back to your argument earlier, Tim, about there being perhaps social commentary, right? In addition to all these other things you're doing inside the film. I mean, you're also playing on sort of, I, I think when it's done well, collective societal fears, right? That there's something in the air out there of like the desert's scary. Nuclear bombs are scary. The military industrial complex is scary, right? right? Like you add, you, you hint at those elements as part of the priming that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, before, uh, mentioning the baby earlier, I wanted to mention and all the, getting at the, bringing out the primal instincts of everyone. Just want to mention, I thought that was a great way to bring out the characters who were supposed to sympathize with their primal instincts. They steal their kid. As soon as that happens, that's when it feels like, well, anything goes for these guys that will do anything to get that baby back in a way that makes us, allows us to be put in that situation. Like, oh, we get it. The parent instincts are kicking in here. Yeah, that's when the mustachioed hero like <laughs> twists, right? Yeah, like that's when he goes from being the reasonable, cool, in control of it to like I've lost my shit. Yeah, and I'm gonna get revenge. You know? Yeah, and they they as far as uh, their team, they do save the day. Yeah. Um, I just had to shout out just for things that brought me into the movie, the performance of uh which is character's name bobby robert houston when he he's the guy the like the blonde guy the skin the non-mustache <laughs> guy the male cheerleader yeah, yeah exactly the male <laughs> cheerleader um he doesn't tell everyone that the dogs died um which you know it's kind of you you get it i could see someone doing that for sure you know it's just so shocking he doesn't want to tell everyone but the moment where he says what happens i thought that was like an amazing amazing performance like that felt so true to life when he was that when he interrupted his sister having sex yeah 
Yes. Was it? Yeah. Was it <laughs> yes. then? Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, you, hey, I know you guys are getting it on right now in the uh, in the station wagon. I got to tell you about a dead dog. No, yeah. And there was something else. There was yeah. Yeah. On the it was, yeah. It just yeah, felt he initially, so real. Yeah. He interrupts them because he's he thinks he's locked himself out. Right. That's it. And so that's why he's interrupting them. But they kind of press him because they're like, what could be so important? And he, it's, it's, it's probably the best if it were actually written. I mean, it's written in some form or another. But, but as a scene from start to finish, it's an actually really well done scene because you have one motivation interrupting another motivation and then they're tasked at kind of pressing each other to be like, what is going on? What is actually going on right now? And the result is him finally kind of going, breaking down and being like, actually, I've been lying. It's the only scene in the movie that has that kind of like depth to it. Yeah. That's so all we really you know, need because then we're off to the races. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> any other favorite uh, scenes, moments, aspects? Speak now, forever, hold your peace. <laughs> I mean, that... Not that I think it's good, but like the head uh, cannibal mutant dad guy with the scar on his face, him mugging for the camera is some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen. <laughs> He's just cheesing, man. He's going hard, like looking <laughs> dead into the lens, like giving a monologue, chewing on some presumably some cop meat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really funny stuff. And I mean, yeah. I don't know that it was meant to be funny, but like, you can't, how could you watch that and not be like tickled by it? It's great. It does go for it. I, you know, I'll tell you the other thing that uh, leaps out at me. The, uh, you mentioned his name earlier, the guy who's in Weird Science. What's his name? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Um, Michael, Michael Berryman. Barry, yeah, Berryman. Berryman. Um, when, uh, when the dog first attacks his ankle. Oh, that's get, right. Uh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, that that like that was shocking. That was a, that was effective use of gore of like, wait, is something wrong? And there's like, I mean, he even like fucks with it a little bit. This little snapped <laughs> tendon. It's yeah, it's like a piece of spaghetti. As somebody yeah. who yeah. has torn their Achilles, oh, it was oh, uh, pretty visceral. I'll tell yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, and and but like uh, another. I mean, to your point earlier of. Uh, it was sort of unpredictable. I knew the dog went after his leg and we sort of don't really see it. And then we really see it. And, yeah, and, yeah. and that was, that was, uh, that was good decision-making. <laughs> Great. Nothing like good Achilles tendon gore horror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if that's it for what worked, I think we can move on to our next section here. What did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work. Okay. No, something important's missing. Uh, Ryan, I, can I just just give another point of view on the costuming of the cannibals? Because <laughs> please, it, I I just think it it completely undercuts any like credibility uh, to the film in a lot of ways. It's so dorky and like it doesn't even really make sense i mean i guess it does but it's like also kind of offensive like yeah. it's just like what are we doing what why are they like why do they have crowns like what is like, I'm just, what the hell is happening but that's a good question why do they have i mean what were they what were they going for what was west craven going for i mean with these costume like, decisions 
like you are think they it's like to some do- fear of native, you know, native people or something? I mean, I don't know because that there's that's what the costume wear is. As you said a second ago, Native American wear meets hillbilly wear. And are they like cavemen? Is it like sort of caveman? Yeah. See, Tim, yeah. I don't know the it fact. Just- the, you're, you're, you're frustrated because you can't place it. I liked it because you can't place it. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I'm I just, with Tim on this one. I'm I also, on yeah. one. to I the mean, same point, like, as much as I liked the the head cannibal cheesing for the camera, he he seems like a stockbroker from, like, you know, 1983. Like, he doesn't feel like a scary dude to me. He's big, but, like... Beyond that, like his his just aesthetic, he just looks like a dude with a really bad makeup job on. Well, like why not have Michael Berryman a, as the as the main mutant lead guy? I mean, he naturally looks weird. Yeah, well, I mean, this was I had a bigger criticism of this overall. What exactly is the bad guy here? I mean, in in a way, <laughs> I I don't I don't quite see what we're supposed to be horrified by. Um, and, uh, and so in, in a substitute for that, you hear a lot of, you know, grunting and, you know, gnawing on human meat and so forth, but it's sort of like, I don't know. It, I, I didn't, nothing ever freaked me out. Nothing ever scared me about the bad guy. I wonder, Michael, if, um, it had to do with my friend, um, pointed out, I watched, uh, watched it with how, unlike kind of other, uh, you know, family assaulted or, you know, captured by cannibals side of the road, whatever movies like wrong turn we've watched, uh, they Mm. it's, it's all happenstance. Like you didn't have the cannibals in this do anything to get them right. It's because they're arguing and they see a rabbit on the road. So maybe that sort of helps set you off on a point, um, where there's no real threat by them. And it's just all kind of just a situation without, like you're saying the antagonistic force trying to get them. Yeah. Well, and I, okay. So a a few things. So I really went out of my way to stay ignorant and blind going into this movie. Um, I thought I, I, so I did not know this was set in a desert until five minutes into this movie. The title (laughs) itself had me thinking it was some, uh, house on a hill. It also had me thinking like primed for something supernatural, Mm -hmm. which we never got. Right. And, and this is, there really is no, you know, poltergeist or any kind of supernatural evil force in here other than, other than nature. Right. And, and that's, that doesn't really count. Um, so so the title, the Hills have eyes made me think we're talking about ghosts or something. Um, Hmm. so I felt a little misled on that score. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, I guess it's a good title, but it doesn't really Speak to. I'm like I didn't feel like these were stalkers necessarily or something. Like it didn't. It, it, I, the the mute the the deranged family living in the hills that they have eyes. It, it it's an ominous title where my expectation for what was going to scare me didn't quite line up with the thing that was ultimately supposed to scare. Yeah, me. it really only captures um, the aspect of the movie where they're first spying on them. It captures, there's something up in these yeah. rocky hills. The original title was, um, Wes Craven's preferred title was Blood Relations. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's kind of better. I can see That's Hills. kind of better. Yeah, yeah, it's more appropriate for this, but I, Hills Have Eyes is a great title and it yeah, ended no, it's up a being thing. for this yeah. movie. <laughs> Uh, well, and I, I, I'm, I'm more likely to 
rent or stream The Hills Have Eyes than I am a movie called Blood Relations. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the marketer, a little the, bit the producer knew that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I overall, like I, I was, I just wasn't, I, I had hoped to, to be more scared. And I, you know, to, to go back to the point of comparing and contrasting this movie with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I don't know why Texas Chainsaw Massacre does scare me in a way. There is something a little bit more, because atmospheric, atmospherically or whatever there they are sort of similar there is this you know out in the sticks people have taken a wrong turn down a road deranged family um you know even even cannibalism but there but there was some element missing in terms of maybe it is in the priming uh in in ter- when it was revealed that you know these are the bad guys and that that's what they do they just didn't scare me that much yeah i also think like i could not get the thought out of my head what do they eat when there's not people around? <laughs> like, I, I shouldn't have had that thought. I mean, I guess they're popping heads off birds or whatever. Lizards. <laughs> right. Lizards, no. yeah. Uh, no, Michael, I, I agree. That's that's something that I had down um, just as far as, yeah, well, it's hard because it, it's appropriate for this section, but it's it's more, I acknowledge how it's sort of my wants or expectations, again, when comparing to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I put down too, yeah, that it just isn't scary to me. And it's interesting. I kind of look at that in the context of where he was coming from with the last house on the left and sort of, the styles there in between, between that, this, and then Texas Chainsaw. Or basically it was like, strategy was, okay, well, Last House on the left, uh, Grindhouse producer wanted to get him to do something else like that, and they saw that can't, and but that wasn't the huge, huge hit. Or it, it was, but uh, he thought, well, what's the key to success for this formula? Make it cannibals, right? So mm-hmm. it's basically do it again, but uh, this time with cannibals. But there's something about this style where it's so documentary-esque, it feels like that works better for the last house on the left when it is just like, you know, regular people, you know, not hillbillies in a crazy situation. Uh, I mean, intense, horrible situation, I say. Um, and last house on the left. Um, but for this, I, I do get the kind of like not meshing feel of their their costumes and the cannibalism, whatever it is, that it just doesn't feel feel scary. Like you need, if it's going to be on the, the scary direction, you need to do what Texas Chainsaw was doing where it's like you have the, sure, you have the documentary feel that makes it feel real, but it goes a step further in the atmospheric sense. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're in the, the 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 dinner table scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or the kind of sound effects that that film has, that this doesn't. It really is kind of the best of both worlds that makes it truly scary. You know, there is a realism that we can buy into with their outfits, and that get us. So when it buys into the things that maybe we want to laugh at, you know, just get them, Grandpa. You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's it's only real at that point. So yeah. I don't know. There's just something different or I don't know. I think it, it it elucidates something when you look at the style of this and Last House on the left and just sort of how that plays out in one way or the other. Well, in Texas Chainsaw, one of the the key elements that that grounds us in the horror of it all is the house, the design of the house, and the sort of like the appropriate like. I, for lack of a better term, almost like the altar upon which they behave this way. Mm, yeah. And you have a concrete structure to contain all of that. And I think that, not that this is the solution for The Hills Have Eyes, but had we 
gotten more than just sort of a couple of pieces of like uh, hide covering like a cave entrance and gotten more of a like, you know, these people, if they've been out there for 30 years or 40 years or whatever, presumably they would have built something. And whatever that something is would speak truly to what the horror of who they are has become or who they've become is whatever that was yeah. a really weird grammatical sentence but you know like when you when you arrive at that thing if one of the of one of the normal quote unquote normal characters the outsiders show up and you see this the altar uh, upon which these cannibals worship you go oh shit we're we're really in trouble and i'm you know not, that's not necessarily to say that you, you have to do it that way, but I think that's what's working in Texas Chainsaw. Once you get inside, you go, oh shit, I get it. M- Mama Bear was napping at the campfire while the col- uh, cannibals were out, you know, killing for the evening, right? And it was sort of mundane. Right, way, exactly. Their, their home, yeah. It was. I agree. And I. it's funny because, you know, one of the things I called out earlier, I like some of the creative use of weapons, a dog is weapon, a snake is weapon, you know, um, flat tire on a car as a weapon or whatever. Um, it, had they poured, poured just a little bit of creative energy into, in, into having them be, you know, deranged or, uh, or, or just freakish in a way that was a little bit not just so out of the box. I mean, it was, it was like, let's put on some funny outfits and all grunt and that'll do it. it right. Was, it was a little bit lazy. Or you know? or bring us into that box appropriately. Maybe it yeah. is too. Because like when I'm mentioning the style, like, and I used this earlier when talking about the killings, the matter of factness that this documentary style has is that much more, that much more horrifying in uh, Last uh, House on the Left. But here it's, it's as if we, yeah, it's only distancing where we don't want it to. Like it, it works for the the attack scene and all that and this, like Last House on the left. But when it's a matter of being introduced to the world, yeah, we need that. We need that little like let us let us look in at things. Let us let's figure this all out. Show us how to look at this. Yeah, believability, really. I mean, it's funny that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is somehow more believable in its <laughs> home setting, but it is. You know, like, yeah, I can I can picture, you know, some sort of severe mental illness going on inside that family in a way that I'd never quite see here. It's sort of just said out loud. It's 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 uh said oh, so it's shown not said when it's told not not shown. Yeah, you know, show not tell. Thank you. Yes. I, I feel like they they tell it. They tell him like in that speech that the gas station attendant has of yeah right. I mean the kid came out wrong and sideways and shit's been fucked up ever since I, I never I never see it yeah, yeah it's a weird like lack of mystery around the characters here that we aren't brought into their world <laughs> yeah just born wrong I mean that that is like the explanation for their um, you know for their ghoulish behavior mm-hmm. yeah like, like I want to see the effect that that's had on this being and then what they've done with it. Like it makes logical sense. And it's in the movie too, that if their only way to survive is to take down like lost passers by, then I want to see a cave or some sort of like chapel that 
is built out of the remnants of the pieces of things that they've collected from those passersby, you know, the weary travelers, like whatever it may be, that's, that's a perversion of uh, their, you know, place of worship or their home. Yeah. And that, Something that like, tells us their values and yeah, what they exactly. care about. Yeah. Like from a design point of view, like how cool would that be if, you know, you get to that place and then get to have some sort of either finale there, or at least it's, it's a, it's a doorway through which you, the, the characters have to pass in order to get to the resolution of the film. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I'm totally with you guys as far as my idealized, scariest version of the movie. It's just that horror. Yeah. <laughs> but where where I am able to still enjoy it is just in a horror movie sense, you can't really, I mean, this is the place you do these kinds of stories. So it, even if it's not scary, how they're presented in a way and all that, I just think it's like fun and something you can only do in a horror movie still. Like it's ridiculous how they all speak to each other, how they all look, the eccentricity. I'm just like, where else can I see it this way? You know, and forget it's not scary. This is all great. That's happening in theory at the same time. The context of it, it's just fun. I agree with that. I guess my question is, and you guys would know this better, was it, it has the interpretation of this movie changed? since it's came out like was this was this once scary or scarier for reasons that we now in 2022 have a harder time identifying yeah i don't know i want to say that the scenes that are still that do still work is probably we're just a you know think of Newer. how huge they were back then like yeah. just the, the trailer attack the, the dragging the guy on the rope the intensity of the burning of the capturing of the father the shooting of the mother the dog yeah. attacked all that we said does work i just feel like you know double triple quadruple that effect of being back there when it first came out and still having this all be pretty fresh you're going to cement a certain reputation for it that i think especially at the time you can overlook maybe these other weirder aspects yeah that makes a lot of sense because i mean again this movie is pointed to you know, like a lot of people cite it as an important, yeah. you know, as an important film in the history of horror movies. So I think what you're saying, Ryan, is a lot of this was innovative in a way that we may not as easily see because we've seen it repeated so many times. Yeah. And I think it's always fun and why I, I you know, it's as high as a rent for me, too, is um which Tim and I talk about this a lot, whenever something is the first to do something or in the early onset of doing something new and, and innovative, it's more uh, potent is the word <laughs> we'll, we'll yeah. use. Something more to it. Like the uh, example, like the first time someone was stalked down a shadowy, creepy alleyway in a movie thinking they hear something behind them. It's going to be that cat people. That was the movie we were right. watching then. Um, yeah. It's hard to watch it that way is the unfortunate thing. We're yeah, just so right. it's just so cliche and familiar to us now. Right. And that was another thing I was wondering about this movie, because there's there's a lot of like cliche horror movie tropes of dumb dialogue, what the fuck are they thinking? Don't leave the <laughs> crowd, you know, what do you you know, yeah. stuff that that we now see, you know, copy paste. Yeah. And I think with films like this, it's it's uh when you're a horror fan and you're someone who actually like you know, even if you didn't love it, love it, you want to revisit over the years. Like films like this, it has grown on me more and more the more I've seen it. Because I start off looking at it from that modern perspective and then I sort of am able to the, latch on to what works and it just sort of comes out more and more, you know, my it's, yeah. it's highlighted the more I sort of know what it is. I, I was having this thought a second ago that as we were talking about the things I like about the movie, I was finding myself like 
liking it more. You <laughs> that know? happens and to I, me I, all the time. Yeah, and I do wonder <laughs> if the if the sort of where you are on the uh, stream rent by you know spectrum has a little bit to do with just how how much you enjoy being a student of the genre. And yeah. the more you are a student of the genre, you know, the higher your ranking is. Because there is actually a lot here. Like there's a lot that's working and that's going right. Um, yeah. Even if even if I have you know even if I'd prefer to stream it. Yeah, and probably compared to other movies, you know, at the time and would subsequently come out that were still in the same vein. I mean, this is still head and shoulders. I think above a lot of the what else was coming out that's like it. Yeah, I meant to say uh, just it, my biggest beef, which which I think is Im- it's almost impossible to get around for this movie and will almost always keep me at kind of a stream in spite of all of the things we're talking about is the thing with Bobby, the, the son not saying anything about the dog getting gutted. Oh, I liked that. I I find it really difficult to like believe that he would just sort of like keep it under wraps. Now I can, I can conceive that somebody would not want to say what happened but to not be like on high alert from that point on to everybody else. Like he's on high alert for himself. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But he doesn't like actually warn anybody of anything. It's more yeah. that, I mean, it's high alert, but it's also shock and denial. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's how I read it. That's how I read it. That's why it's why I think. And then I think when, when he does uh, later to his sister and brother-in-law, you know, say this happened, it's like, he's finally confronting some of that fear. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't particularly impressed with his, the actor's performance in this movie. Maybe he didn't have the dialogue to work with. So I didn't think the the acting was all that. I struggled with it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to be nice. I fucking hated it. I I, I thought the acting (laughs) was pretty God awful, but I don't know. You have to have a lot of creative license. I thought that I, 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 that was actually in the win column for me. Not that he didn't tell it, but I thought he sold the not telling of it as trauma, okay. as um, a, as I don't know what to say here yet, and I don't know what's going on. Because I think the other thing going on is he has been tasked with, you know, he's the one with the gun. He's been tasked with taking care of the family, and 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 now he's freaked out. He might not be up to the task because somebody mm. just killed his fucking dog. You know, so there there was a like a scared to ask for help because I'm supposed to be in charge. Okay. Thought that maybe I don't know. It's one I one can, take. On I it. can kind of get behind that, but I agree with you. I don't like him. Like I think <laughs> yeah. he sucks. Yeah, he sucks. He sucks. <laughs> I mean, quite quite the athlete, but not not yeah. the actor. He yeah. did not work for me. Well, he did not work for me. Anything else that did not work? Are we good for things of note here? I think I'm good. The mom was a little bit over the top with oh. her uh, let's stop and pray stuff. Uh, <laughs> How about when she's I, like, that's not worked. my Bob. That's not my Bob. <laughs> yeah. that was, it's like, that was a little hard to take. It's not, then, it's, I get, it's like not good, but it's like, it's good. It's, you know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's I love it though, you know? <laughs> it's kind of good. It's kind of good. Uh, smoke is coming out of the, the burnt dad's mouth for quite a while. I don't know how much smoke can be stored inside lungs. And every time they cut to him, it's just more dribbling out. We call yeah. that creative license. Yeah. I I appreciate like uh, 
the the band-aids if you will like a film you can't do the reshoots you don't have the cg to split takes i don't know it's all part of the charm for me (laughs) is i think the polite way to put it that i that i'd get i enjoy it for just use that take again (laughs) we'll be fine yeah Yeah. um okay great then with that i think we're good to move on to here to our last big section things of note This should be interesting. All right. So as I said, kind of inspired by Texas Chainsaw Massacre in that way, where, um, well, here, let's, let's cap with Wes Craven was doing at the time. He's working as a sound editor when New York City, when um, where he was working, producer Peter Locke, you know, befriended him as he was working on his film. Wes Craven had made, it been like three or four years since he made uh, Last House on the Left. And couldn't and couldn't get off um, the ground any of his dramas that he was writing and hoping to make his non horror films, but uh, Peter Locke, you know, befriended him was basically like, all right, well, write something scary, set it in the desert, and then I'll get the money for it. And then he says, you know, it can do better than just rape movies as cannibal movies. So there you go. So there's that combination of elements that made it happen. Wes Craven was like, yeah, you know what? I need the work. I want to go back to my career here as a filmmaker, keep that going. I'm going to do it. So he went to the uh, New York public library and just was looking in the, um, I get, what do you call it? The section where they have uh, uh, horrible things that happen. <laughs> um, I don't know where that would be. Um, I want to know where that is, but yeah, yeah, yeah anyway. it's, God, <laughs> it sounds well, like, it sounds like a section of the library I'm interested in. Right. I guess. Microfiche. Yeah, yeah, where the microfiches are exactly. Yeah. No, where where um, murders are are tracked. I don't know, like wherever wherever that is. Anyway, um, but he found the story from the 1500s about Sonny Bean, who oh, was the figurehead this. of this uh, incestuous Scottish clan uh, who were living in caves. It was Sonny Bean, his crazed wife. And then eight sons, six daughters, eighteen grandsons, fourteen granddaughters, and wow. they they would they were on the 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 east side of Scotland, and there are two main roads in Scotland going down it. They would head to the one furthest from them to sort of avoid being tracked. Um, they'd like pickle the humans they were capturing all this horrific stuff and then um finally they were they were caught when um the, uh, someone was able to sort of fend off themselves with like a weapon or uh with a they had guns back then whatever I think with a sword and a gun and uh escaped and got a look at him and all that um caught eventually and then um i mean <laughs> it was just sort of going to, no, obviously none of this is in the movie but it is interesting how it played out i think they ended up what did the police do they chopped off all the men's penises and then broke their backs and dismembered them entirely and all the women they just set on fire god damn so, right. so this is all real yeah so okay no it's not okay. it's sort of real oh, what do you mean disappointing okay so I went down this rabbit hole at one point. This whole lore, the Sonny Bean lore, is widely now thought to be a propaganda story that was, at the time, between the UK and like the Brits and the Scots were having a bunch of wars. And it was basically a propaganda thing to scare people into siding with the Brits. To say, like, 
th- these are this is how horrible the people up there are, right? That if they can produce this type of horror, that means that all of them in some way are are you know rotten to the core, right? Yeah, and yeah. so it's not confirmed one way or the other if how much how much truth <laughs> and how much propaganda exists around this tale, but it's now starting to be considered more likely that it was way more propaganda. Like the cutting off the penises thing is kind of a tell, right? It's like, yeah. if you step out of line, you Scots, this is what we're going to do to you kind but of it's stuff. Not, I mean, the th- but they're eating people. It's not just like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, I went down the whole, the whole thing because I was like, damn, this is amazing. And then I start, you know, you start digging and you start finding the, uh, I guess, repudiation of those tales. Well, either way, how the fuck does Wes Anderson stumble across this in the New York Public Library? Wes like, Craven, I just yeah. I, I'm sorry, what, did I say Wes Anderson? <laughs> yeah, that'd Very be different a really movie. cool Very Wes Anderson movie. Very different movie, yeah. It's, it's just, it's, that's a project in development, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Wes Craven, thank you. you know, how does that's, Wes Craven discover this in the New York Public Library? I'd just like to see that's when, uh, they think that's when a serendipity is on a movie side, you know? We all experience yeah. it in our own lives, in our own creative work, you know? You find the right story at the right time. I yeah, just, I mean, just wonder how anybody did any research before the internet. That's all. Like, he had I to think, talk to the librarian, like, I'm looking for some fucked up shit. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. I got I mean, something from 15th century Scotland. That's <laughs> what I used to do when I was in elementary school, when we would yeah. have library time, whatever that was. I don't know if it was a class or, or just like a, a time well, that's period. library time. Yeah, yeah. We, I would go over to the one section of the library that had the book on like cryptids and like supernatural stuff. And I would, every day I would go over and look through the same, like three books and look at like, you know, the stuff on Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and UFOs and like, you know, some haunting stuff. I had a uh, time life library. It was like a um, of strange and unusual facts. And it was like a dozen of these books and I fucking loved it. Like I read them over and same thing, read them over and over again. I mean, you know, so I guess that I guess there was a section, yeah, in the library where you could find this if you're looking for it. But anyway, that's great. That's <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm sorry to hear it's not real or is only so real, but or still. disputed and could be totally real for all we yeah, know. Who knows? Sure, who knows? Sure. It's who knows? old enough. Hard to say. <laughs> yeah. No, well, so I heard that story, and he was he was telling it like it was real. Where I was coming at that way from Joe Bob Briggs, they did this um did this as an episode on the last drive in, and he had Michael Berryman on who plays um Pluto, and he gave some fun like behind the scenes tidbits to this movie as well as is his he still own, alive? Is Michael Berryman still yeah, alive? Yeah, he was still he's still alive. He was in um One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Was yeah. Of so course. it was the casting director from that that then got him on um, Hills Have Eyes, I believe. Can we pause real quick on why I asked that question? Mm-hmm. I told you guys about my app, right? We mm-hmm. didn't plug this in the intro. My Dead or Alive app? Dead or... No, no. I don't think so. Oh, fuck me. Okay, I'll, I'll, we got a link to this in the show notes. I'm very, very proud of it. It's a strategy for promoting Famous and Gravy. We've got a database of uh, celebrities that are dead or alive, and it's a little game you can play where, uh, shit, I'll pull it up real quick. I would just bear with me. This is fun. Okay. So, uh, so, Willie D. Who is that? There's a clue button. Ghetto Boys rapper. Is Willie D alive or dead? I don't know. Take dead. 50 50. Dead. Still with us. 55. <laughs> Phyllis Diller. 
dead. Phyllis Diller is died in 2012. Good call. Alan Alda? Dead. No. He's alive. 86 years old and still going strong. Oh, anyway, sorry, I've got Alan. hundreds of these. I've got <laughs> hundreds of these. Uh, yeah, anyway, this is my game that I'm telling. James Lipton. Oh, you guys are going to know this one. Oh, he's dead. I'm afraid we lost him in 2020. Adam West? Ooh. Yeah. I think Adam West is still alive, isn't he? Oh, I'm no. Afraid. We lost him in 2017. Anyway. Oh, so. <laughs> he, that's right. He was in the 2017 year. In memorandum. Yeah. Those, right. those terrible years. Anyway. Sorry. Okay. That's, that's why cool. I asked about. I'm, gonna, I'm al- always on the lookout for new names to add. So Michael Berryman's <laughs> Right. Basically, anyone nice. over 70 or what's the what sort of yeah. <laughs> the criteria? Yeah. The, just that you forgot about him. It's been a while <laughs> since you've thought about him. This is the whole premise. The famous and gravy is like how ephemeral, you know our memory of celebrities are. Totally. Uh, and now, yeah. yeah, anyway. Um, well, yeah, so Michael Berryman, it was interesting, you know, talking about his own life and, you know, those are, I forget the terms for the, um, the, the, the medical terms for what he has, but yeah, basically these different, um, yeah, the cranial things that he has going on where he said that he was, um, his dad uh, was uh, he he went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the bombings, like pretty soon in those few years after, to do some kind of like reconnaissance work or science, you know, on um Man. on all that, and that led to um his son being born this way. Um, so it's interesting wow. to learn that just as far as, you know, I mean, whatever, you know, who cares, but as far as in reference to this film, it's just still interesting how it's about that in a way of, um, yeah, the effects of, um, nuclear Holocaust and all that explosions. Well, and they, they only hint at it here. It's never totally hundred yeah. percent clear that that's like causal that way, you know, yeah. that this, something went wrong for this family, although or maybe it is hinted at more and I missed it. I just feel like it's just kind of the fun, I don't know, when talking about it and maybe the the remake kind of solidifies it in a way. Yeah. But yeah. It, I think I just think it's fair game when when you know reading this film. Um but the the really fun anecdote that they uh, that he shared on the show, uh maybe a thing of legend Tim, we don't know, but he said it as Michael Berryman put it that um this is so funny they don't do stuff like this at all nowadays, but to help promote the film Wes Craven and the producer um, went brought Michael Berryman and dressed him up in costume while this film was showing at a drive-in in Van Nuys, and just thought, you know, let's let's scare some people. <laughs> so uh, the first guy he went up to, he uh, went up to a car, and, you know, pounded on the windshield or whatever, tried to scare him. He said it was a huge guy who got out of the car with a baseball bat and started chasing after him and yelled, I'm going to smash your head in. You scared my girlfriend. And oh my that was you know, Michael Berryman. He was like outrunning him, outrunning this guy with a baseball bat. And that was when Wes Craven and the producer pulled up in a van. They opened the back door and Wes Craven yelled, grab my hand, got into <laughs> safety. And they went to a Denny's afterwards, which I love that detail, <laughs> sat in quiet until the producer, Peter, said... I think we have a hit. <laughs> wow. Um, um, random. The golden days of promotion. Well, my, yeah. Michael, anything from your uh, area of expertise that um, that you think uh, got you thinking on this film or coming I mean, out from we've that kind lens? of already talked about it. You know, I mean, my background is in environmental science, and I think about 
how that how, how environmental threats kind of hover as background fears in society a lot. I, I you know and and like how that can have expression in horror movies. So I do think that the nuclear testing in this one, you know, I kind of I like the appearance of that. I think about that with like Toxic Avenger too or with Return of the Living Dead, kind of the threat of acid rain is sort of <laughs> I, I feel like plays a role in the revival of, of zombies. Um what's another good example? So I I, I more than anything, that's what kind of what, like, this is something that everybody was freaked out about. Like, nuclear war was a real threat. It was a real prospect. And I, it may be, still be again. I mean, we'll have to see where things go. But it's sort of not top in terms of the global threats these days. Um, so that's the only thought I had on that. Yeah. Um, what kind of rocks were they? Uh, granite. Uh, that's about all I can say. Uh, I need a hand sample and I need a microscope. Got it. I'm not that good. I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> I had the thought. Tim, anything uh, on your mind? Um, yeah, I was, as I tend to be curious about where it was shot, I looked this up. So it was outside of Victorville, which is very close to us. Well, me right now, I'm in Hollywood, essentially. And I've been out there. I filmed a, a, well, I didn't film it. I worked on a music video that was shot really close to where this is. So it's basically, it's an area called Apple Valley and there's a bunch of dry lake beds and like really cool craggy rock formations and those weird sort of rounded boulder, you know, piles everywhere. So it's a cool accessible area. I mean, lots of stuff's been filmed there. Um, but it was interesting, you know, to me to think like, from somebody who doesn't live in California, how recognizable is that landscape as Southern California? Because like the Joshua trees in this film, to me, are really iconic, right? Because mm -hmm. I see them all the time. Like those are the areas I go out to go camping or hiking or whatever, because that's what's nearby. But if you're from elsewhere... Do you make that connection that 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 this is like the Mojave Desert? I, I did for that reason, so much so that when they said we're heading to California, my first thought was, "Aren't you already there? Look at the Joshua trees." <laughs> okay, yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 to me, it is. But I've I've done that. Uh, I've done that drive a few times between Texas and Southern California, and and have gotten off the interstate and have. Uh, wrecked a, a Winnebago and had cannibals. No, that part. Mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah. I mean, that, that, that territory is, it's just so trippy, right? It makes, it's the kind of like, looks like the kind of place it'd be fun to do psychedelics. Um, yeah. oh my at least God. that was my thought. You're, you know I'm, what I mean? You're not alone. Yeah. You know what I like connect with the rock and the weird ass desert. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's in Nevada though. I'll be damned. Okay. So, so it's, it's, very close to the it's in San Bernardino County. It's like it's California. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it is California. I thought you said Nevada. I Set, uh, the movie takes place in Nevada. Right. Oh. So it's it's trying to double for the fallout. Oh. But I've actually been to this area of Nevada too. Along US 50, um there's a really prominent Air Force base where they are doing bom bombing runs daily. Is that and, the loneliest highway in America yes, that they yes, call it? It's yeah, the Lincoln I've Highway, done, loneliest highway. Yeah, yeah, I've done that drive a couple of times. Yeah, and it is. I mean, it is bleak. I rode yeah. my bicycle from Tahoe to the border of Utah, 
on no shit. US 50. And it took wow. like five days, I think. And it is, I mean, it is just nothing. Like valley range, valley range, valley range, and like straight away the whole time. And do you have that feel, Tim, that the hills have eyes when you're <laughs> biking in the area? Because I do imagine where you're looking out and it's so desolate, you just always yeah. have that sort of sense of, but there could be someone <laughs> in there over there. It's certainly a- extremely eerie. When I, uh, the first time I was ever on that highway, I was moving to California and I was moving by myself in a, ma- uh, what was I in? A, a 96 Honda Accord. And I made this, I probably not great decision to, instead of taking the interstate, take 50. And not knowing at all, I was like, oh, well, it goes right across, straight across Nevada. That that will be faster, right? No, it's definitely not. Like, you can't go that fast. You have to go up and down these, you know, mountain ranges every, whatever it is, 30 miles. Basin and like range that. terrain, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, of course, I'm doing it, and it's, you know, it becomes nighttime, and I'm trying to get to San Francisco from Denver in in one go, which ends up being about 24 hours of driving. And <laughs> once the sun went down and I got, I, I got to, like, hour... 13 or something like that, I definitely started to trip out. Like I was, you know, I started having these thoughts of like, I, you can't see anything, right? Because there's no color scale. Like your headlights, it's just gray. Everything's gray at night because there's no, there's no street lights either. So it's just your headlights shining on nothing, right? Like it's brush and rocks and, and the pavement in front of you. And it really started to freak me out. I felt like, I was going, I I kept having this thought, some dude is just going to step out in front of my car. And I don't, and it's irrational, right? Like there's no reason why there would be a dude out there. But one of the strangest experiences of my life was on that trip at probably midnight-ish. I rolled into a town called Austin, Nevada, which is pretty much smack dead center of Nevada. and. It's this strange town on the side of a hill. And I come in, I'm thinking, okay, I'm really tired. I should pull in somewhere and just sleep in my car. So I see a gas station with a little gravel parking lot. And there's like a willow tree at the back end of it. I'm like, perfect. I'll park under that willow tree and I'll, I'll just take a nap. And I pull into the, into the lot and it's tiny. You know, it's like maybe an eight car lot or something like that. And in the middle of the lot is a dude uh, standing on one leg with, <laughs> with no shoe on one foot, the foot that's in the air. And he looks ragged, like he looks rough. And he's just hopping on one foot in the middle of this parking lot at midnight in Austin, Nevada. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's weird. So I... I pull up and I'm like, okay, maybe I shouldn't stay here. I'll just go into the gas station. I'll get some cigarettes and some caffeine and like try to just push through. And so I, you know, I like get out of my car. He's gone. I'm like, oh shit. Like this just feels (laughs) bad. I go into the gas station. I grab like, I think I grabbed like some Cokes or something like that. And, and I go up to the counter to ask for a, a pack of cigarettes 
and <laughs> the clerk is standing there. He's this old grizzled dude, and the door chime rings, and the the clerk's like mid exchange with me. He's like about he's like about to ring up what I have, and I have like a you know ten dollar bill out ready to give to him. And the door chimes, and he turns in. He just immediately flips, and he starts screaming. He's like, I fucking told you, get the fuck out of here, you motherfucker! And he's going nuts. And the guy, it's the guy with no shoe, and he's going, but give me my goddamn shoe, you motherfucker. And they're just motherfucking <laughs> each other and screaming about the shoe and about not coming in ever again. And it just keeps going on. And I'm standing there super awkwardly. And I just put the $10 bill down and I like <laughs> back my way out while they continue to just bark at each other. The dude's like reaching under the, the clerk's reaching under the thing. He pulls out one of those little like billy club bats and he's hitting the counter with it. I mean, it was wow. complete and utter insanity. So I, quickly got into my car and continued driving. So like that, yes, to answer your question, <laughs> that's the vibe in the middle of Nevada a lot of the time. So, so yeah, <laughs> the, the hills do have eyes, sure. <laughs> that's great. Sort of throws water on the whole plausibility of the deranged family. And maybe it's a little more plausible than we thought. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. <right. laughs> Wow. I wow. mean, that sounds like a setup for just one of these movies. Yeah. Well, I, I know immediately I was like, well, I'm not sleeping. And I got to get out of here. <laughs> I'm pushing through. Because that is always how these movies start, where it's just like something is off, but like not yet in the murderous, you know, obvious cannibal way, but just some right. sort of tension is going to be in place here. <laughs> wow. What? Can I ask a question? What did Wes Craven make after this? I'm just wondering, like, I mean, because to the point earlier of it being an oft-sided film. Um, I, you know, I'm wondering what it did for his, you know, juice and his ability to... He made a movie called Deadly Blessing in 81 um, okay. that none of us have seen probably. And then in 82, he got Swamp Thing and did that. Okay. Um, which so is he kind of crazy. He, he, had some, he had some sway coming out of this. Yeah. I mean, Swamp Thing was basically a made-for-TV movie. Yeah. We did it for the podcast. And then two years later, he does Nightmare on Elm Street. That's 84? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one I, I mean, that's the one I know the best. Yeah. Like I, that was one of the first horror movies I ever saw. Well, that was another thing I was going to say. So, so far on this podcast, we've done Last House on the Left, Now Hills Have Eyes. We did Swamp Thing. We didn't do the first Nightmare on Elm Street, but we did the third one. Yeah. For me, we, the second one was always underrated for what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah, we did Shocker, right, Ryan? Yep, we did Shocker. We did it on all the screams. Yeah. Yep, all the screams. And that's it of his filmography. Like, that's a lot of his movies. Right. And we've talked about and The Last House on the Left, though, we did not do. We did the remake. Oh, that's right. We did the remake. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Should I watch the original? Yes. It sounds like it. I think so. It, 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 it's I, I rewatched it recently. It's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's a hard watch. And okay. I don't mean because it's a bad movie. I mean, because it's really upsetting. Yeah, I, I feel like maybe- I have a pretty th thick stomach, though. Yeah, no, I feel like maybe what you're saying about just you still are, you know, you're glad to have seen this one. And it sounds like, you know, when you talk to us about um, you had an interest in Wes Craven, so just someone's filmography you're more interested in. So, I mean, got to see, got to see their first film in that case, I always say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I think you talked me into it. And, you know, I there, there is a lot of joy in- just knowing about these movies and having watched them. Like it, it is, 
you know, I'm I'm sold on the, you know, I'm sold on the mission of your podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So uh, kudos. Great. Good to hear it. Um, great. Well, with that, I think uh, we can wind down here from The Hills Have Eyes and wind down with some recommendations we'd like to make. So, um, Michael, let's end with you. I'll give you the big finish here. Uh, Tim, what do you have? Okay, so it's a movie called Watcher. It's from this year. It's 22. It's thriller. It's the girl from um, It Follows is the lead. And she moves to, um, I can't remember what country it is, like Turkey or something like that, and um, with her, her new husband. And she doesn't speak the language, and he does, and he's got a really big job. And she starts noticing that across the street from their new flat, there's a person in the window just staring at her all the time. And that sort of the sets off a series of very interesting events. It's a it's a really well like kind of conf- confined little movie, but it's super effective and it's really it's suspenseful and cool and and it's not complicated. There's no like crazy twist or anything. It's just like an eerie, cool, standard like ninety minute like freaky thriller. Great, so it's good. Watcher. Yeah, Watcher. All right. I will recommend Dead. I already recommended uh, Salem's Lot, the book. So coming off of that, I wanted to watch the movie and then watch the movie's sequel. Tim, I had not known about the sequel. It was directed by Larry Cohen, director of The Stuff, which we dismembered. And uh, it's called A Return to Salem's Lot. I like that actually way better than Salem's Lot, the movie. (laughs) But it stars Larry Cohen regular Michael Moriarty. And cast alongside him is the director, Sam Fuller. So it's like you have this, the dream team you didn't know you needed, Michael Moriarty and Sam Fuller hunting vampires together. And it's got like the Larry Cohen thing through and through. So it's it's great. I recommended a return to Salem's lot. <laughs> cool. Michael, how about you? Uh, I had a couple of recommendations and I don't know how many I can offer here. Um I got really, really into Love, Death, and Robots recently uh, oh, yeah. on Netflix. Have you all watched that? Just, I think just one, maybe. Dude, holy shit. There's some great, there's some great, and they're all these animated shorts. It's yeah. different animators. It, uh, there's a, I, I may be a little older than you guys, so I'm not sure if you all are aware of a, of a show called Liquid Television that was on oh, MTV once Liquid upon a time. Yeah. It's like Liquid Television meets Black Mirror. And with a whole okay. bunch of really, really excellent animation, and a, and a lot of it is very horror themed. I cannot recommend it enough. I and it's nice that they're all bite sized, but I wound up binging the whole thing, and I'm gonna go do it again. Love right. Death and Robots on Netflix. Highly recommend it. Um, the other thing I was thinking that was uh, appropriate. It's do you guys are you all aware of the podcast you're wrong about? It's kind of, it's fairly popular. Um, they did it, it's it's uh, the the show is sometimes good, sometimes you know I don't I love all of them, but um, they did one on the Donner Party recently mm. that was awesome, like awesome, awesome. Walked you through all of the you know to the point topic of cannibalism. I thought this would be appropriate for this podcast. So uh, the you're wrong about episode. It's called the Donner Party with Chelsea Weber Smith. Uh, on the You're Wrong About podcast. So those are my two big recommendations. Um, and then uh, and then my shit, my show. 
uh, yeah, famous, famous and gravy. Famous and, um, any, famous and gravy. Any for the the sort of film fans here? Any you could particularly uh, send point us in the direction of, or anything upcoming you're excited about? Yeah, well, both, I guess. Um, you know, I didn't get as much of attention as I won, but we did an episode with Larry McMurtry, who's a Texas author, but also big time screenwriter. So the movies that he's associated with are Last Picture Show, Terms of Endearment, and he co-wrote the screenplay for Brokeback Mountain. The main thing he's known for is Lonesome Dove, uh, which mm. both the, the he wrote the book, but the miniseries is outstanding. Uh, I really like that one. Um we're doing one, I think. So what we do on the show is we choose a celebrity who's died. And it's sort of the way I've been thinking about the podcast lately is it's sort of a different take on a biography. Like a lot of biographies ask the question, you know, what did this person accomplish? And on Famous and Gravy, we try and get at what was it like to have been this person? So we go through a bunch of categories like their net worth and how many marriages and kids did they have? Were they ever on the Simpsons Saturday night live or do they have a hall of fame? Um, uh, good dreams, bad dreams is a category. I really like coffee, cocktail, cannabis, which one would you want to do with our dead celebrity? So anyway, uh, the, the Larry McMurtry episodes good. I also was really proud of the way the Gary Shandling episode mm. came out. Uh, if you know, Gary Shandling, like that was that, that episode, a lot of things came together for me in there. And then in October, we're going to, I think, do George Romero, finally, um, which I'm very excited about. Great. And uh, yeah. All right. So that's Famous and Gravy. Oh, and then the last thing I'll plug, and then I'll shut up. Dead or Alive app. I'm very, very proud of this little game. I'm, I'll send it to you. Great. You'll no, I was it. just going to ask the name of that again. Dead or Alive yeah. is that Dead app. or Alive app, A-P-P. So you can go to it on a mobile device, on a browser. Mm. You could do it right now, oh, yeah. Dead or Alive. And uh <laughs> Great. And, and have fun. It's a nice bar room game. Great way to to meet uh, to um to meet people at a bar. Awesome. So no, yeah, this should be um yeah. So the George Romero episode, if it's not out already, it'll be out soon. And then I can recommend two film friends. Uh, the Roger Ebert episode was a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Oh thanks, man. Yeah, I forgot about that one. That's a that's probably a better one than. The oh, one I did the Zsa Zsa Gabor one <laughs> i had fun with that one that actually cool. the last one we we just did judge wapner of people's court that's oh, not yeah. a film one but that actually like fucking came together in a way and then the the one coming out soon is muhammad ali which was sort Ooh. of a, a big one to tackle but uh i think it works i don't know um, anyway that's um, cool great yeah. so yeah we'll catch them there yeah no thanks so much for joining today michael this was a lot of fun Guys, what an honor to be here. I really appreciate it, Ryan and Tim. And um, keep up the good work on dismembering horror. And thanks for inviting me on for this one. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Great. Well, uh, in closing, everyone, if uh, the local gas station attendant on the small desolate road tells you to stay off of that road, maybe you should listen to him. Thanks for listening. That's right. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.